Hi there. This is Michael from the future editing this podcast. And I just wanted to let you know before we start that we've had to transition to podcasting on Zoom because of the pandemic. Before we even got used to doing in person, to be honest. This time, the audio quality isn't quite what we wanted it to be. It's not that bad, but we'll be fixing it for next time. Thanks so much for listening to our little podcast, and we hope you enjoy it. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sound of Scoring podcast, where we look at some of our favorite scores from film, television, and video games, and do a deep dive on our love of music. My name is Zim, and with my co-host Michael, we're attempting to find out how these scores work and how they help to tell a story. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to the Sound of Scoring podcast. Uh, I am here today with my good friend and ex-roommate, Zim. How you going, Zim? Missing you as a roommate every day, but every day. I know. Doing good. We're back again. And I, I guess I should say, I, I, my name is Michael, uh, if you didn't know. Um, thank you for tuning in, uh, if this is your first time or if you've come back for, from the first one. Um, good luck to you if you, you know... <laughs> if you decided to come back after that but uh you know we, we digress and if this is your first episode we do have another episode before this that you know can give you a rough idea of what our discussion on our podcast is like or stick around it's not a serialized format we're not it's not a part one part two thing going on here it's on separate discrete episodes right now yeah exactly i mean last time we did spider-man 2 and that was pretty fun uh with all the drama that went on with that um, but now we take on a new challenge. We're two episodes. This is a second episode, and we thought, I think we're ready for it. I think we're ready for a series of podcasts. Um, even though <laughs> this is our only our second, but we're taking on Hans Zimmer, uh, who is a Goliath of a com- composer. I'm pretty sure everyone on the planet knows his name. Um, we're starting for off. Sure, he's definitely become the modern go-to name for scoring films yeah absolutely but as michael said we are going to devote the next series of podcast episodes to hans zimmer so yeah we'll be starting with rayman i think we discussed next time doing lion king for the for the 2000s we haven't quite decided yet but if anybody listening has a a preference we could definitely use some help deciding because he has a lot of films during that time and including like the Batman series, um, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Sherlock. Um, Zim even brought up before Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 2 apparently. Point, the point being is that there are a lot of options for us to tackle on our third Hans Zimmer episode. So if you have a preference that you want to us to discuss, please comment on it. We have our own Facebook page. It's called The Sound of Scoring. Check that out. We also have uh, a Gmail account as well. If you, for some reason, want to email us, uh, it's called thesoundofscoring at gmail.com. you who don't know the film rain man was released in 1988 and features uh tom cruise and dustin hoffman in which a film that dustin hoffman would win the academy award for best supporting actor and the film itself would win best picture 
And the film centers around Charlie Babbitt, played by Tom Cruise, who's this egotistical hotshot car dealer who discovers that he has an autistic brother. Um, I think believe he's autistic, um, based on what the film says. Yeah, and they say he's an autistic savant, which is a fairly savant. old term. And his brother has been left all this money from his father who passed away. So Charlie Babbitt essentially kidnaps his brother <laughs> um, <laughs> and then goes on a road trip with him to try and get the money. But in, over the course of the film, it turns out that they bond together and he ultimately comes to love his older brother. Um, that's the crux of the, the film. Spoiler alert, I guess. <laughs> but it's been quite a while, so you should have watched it. Um, yeah, it's... And it's definitely a product of the time. Yeah, there's... The, when I first watched it, I had a bit of a knee-jerk reaction because I, I haven't seen it before. So looking at it through a 2020 lens, it's it's a little tough. But at the same time, I did do some research into what the film did... Um, for autism in that it brought to light, like it brought it more visible, whether or not, and it does have its problems with its portrayal of autism, especially in in the case of, um, you know, uh, making everyone think that autistic people in general just were re- all really good at maths when in, in the case it's just very rare, like that someone would be a savant and autistic. Like um, it's just not really how it works. And, and I mean, just the portrayals in general, I mean, Tom Cruise uses the R word at least ten times. It's all very, um, it's it's all very, yeah. It's just a bit ick, problematic. Yeah, it's especially in in the in the zeitgeist right now. But we also have to remember that sometimes it, when you look at a film that has come from that era, you have to come. You have to look at it also with the kind of the atmosphere. And the worldview of then. I mean, some films are simply some films are simply just timeless. They don't age like that. But this one clearly has. Yeah, this one this one aged uh, pretty poorly. Um, and I, I mean, for a film that won Best Picture, it's not even up there with the Oscar winners. I I I feel like it's not. It's not a. Pretty sure it's better than Crash, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's not a, that's not an uncontroversial view. <laughs> But I mean, some people like this movie, and if you like this movie, then that's totally fine. We're not saying that it's a bad movie at all, or at least I'm not saying that it's a bad movie. But the reason this film was picked was because this was Hans Zimmer's first Hollywood film score project, and also became his first Academy Award nominated score. And it is definitely one of those films that was an important turning point in his career, because it kind of introduced him to the masses of audiences as well as his particular sound you can tell simply because if you were to look at the academy award nominees for best original score for 1988 films four out of five of them are purely orchestral scores from the likes of john williams maurice jar i think that's how you pronounce his name and so on and hans's score is the only electronic synth-like score. It's it, it's interesting because the eighties, like this was late eighties too. What was popular at the time in in like Hans was mainly probably doing what was in popular music, yeah. Which I find is less shocking than say like people turning to John Williams and like orchestral music. But I guess they, there was still probably remnants of the golden age of Hollywood and needing that orchestral score 
to propel the story yeah. forward and stuff like that. Not to mention that John basically resurrected that with Star Wars in the 70s. So basically kept that around. But it was interesting because in the research that I've done in terms of how Hans got to work on this film is that he had previously done a film called A World Apart where Michael will explain it later in the podcast sounds very similar to Rain Man. And what happened was Barry Levinson, who was the director of Rain Man, his wife listened to the music of World Apart a lot of times, bought the CD and played it for him. And according to Hans, when he did a retrospective look at his career in Vanity Fair, which you can check out the video on YouTube, highly recommend. um, He talks about how the director showed up at his doorstep in London and when he had a shitty studio. And he said, my name is Barry Levinson. I'm a Hollywood director and I'm making a film about such and such. And Hans was like, yeah, right, you are. Um, So it's an interesting kind of (laughs) anecdote about how that story came to be. And he credits it with it being really important in terms of his work ethic because I'm not sure about, I can't really speak for other musicians or any other artists, but there is a tendency when we are composing that we just kind of want to keep composing a specific section or a specific part of music to get it exactly the way we want to, right? And but there's always the idea of chasing perfection is that we are constantly trying to tweak it and make it better. Sometimes we just have to tell ourselves, stop, this is fine, move along. And for Hans, when he was talking about it, that was what the director was to him, where Barry would just be like, this cue is fine, move on to the next one. And that's something that for any aspiring film music composers, unless you have a crap ton of time and a lot of resources, once you... Once the director says a cue is fine, move along, you got to just keep moving along. Yeah, I think... So that was an interesting story. Yeah, and, and that is interesting because I feel like as a, as a film composer, you have the ability to develop that skill a lot more than other musicians because a lot of the time there are tight deadlines and you don't have... I mean, I, I can only spe- speak from my experience, but you, you don't necessarily have the time to rethink everything, even though you want to. And I've certainly even now film that we scored together, I've certainly gone and poured over it and gone, oh, I could have done that better. I'd want to do that better. I could still do that better. But the film's done and it's released and you can't do anything about it. Um, and Well, I mean, it, it was meant to be released, but uh, COVID <laughs> took that for me too. Yeah, we could have seen it in, in cinemas, but yeah. Bloody COVID. Uh. COVID. COVID. <laughs> But um, but I digress. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about Hans Zimmer though is that now he's kind of, um, especially I guess with Christopher Nolan, he's got this work ethic, and it is a, a it is a high work ethic. Um, he releases so many films a year, um, but he works on so many films a year. But he tends to, um, especially with Christopher Nolan, come in very early on the process. So he has actually now modern Zimmer has like a lot more time than I would say most composers do ever. Like sometimes he has eight months on a project when, you know, Danny Elfman even um, in our last um, episode, Spider-Man 2, um, often commented about how he only had like two months or like, on a particular film or um, a month and then, you know, you brought on late and you're just kind of like, oh, crap, I'll just write something and something happens whereas Hans Zimmer yeah, now... Yeah, have to wing it. Yeah, Hans Zimmer now can just kind of sit on it for a while, which is interesting. Um, so 
Is uh, is that? Did you want to talk any more about the context of the film, or, or are you happy with that? I think it was more or less just. If I had to add one other thing, the soundtrack and the score, and because this is a film where it uses a lot of licensed music as well, mm. his score is sparse to say the least. Yeah, but it is very synth heavy, mm-hmm. very rhythmic which we'll cover in the our compositional analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, as any really good Hans Zimmer film score does, it always hits the right emotion perfectly. So I thought it was a pretty good score when I could hear it in the film. Yeah, it is, it is mixed quite low. And there's certain points um, that yeah. we can discuss that. But... Yeah, something that I want to talk about as well before we get into the, the, the meat and potatoes, as the saying goes, um, is so in researching for this film and trying to get my hands on the score, I realised that at the time it was released on a soundtrack with mainly the licensed like source music. So like, um, you know, the pop songs that they used in the score. Um, that w- It was released on a CD at the time with only two of Hans Zimmer's tracks which have the main themes, I would say, on it. But really, that's like five minutes of music in a movie that has a lot more than that. So I tried to find other releases. And there was a release in 2010 by a company that just got the raw tapes and did a really bad job. And that's the one we're actually going to be listening to right now because there was also one made in 2018, which was better quality, but only a 1,000 copies were made and it's way more expensive. Um, so we're listening. And we don't have that kind of funding no. or money, folks. No, no, we don't. So um, I'm sorry if the audio quality is bad, but that is literally what they released. Um, so <laughs> this is all we can do. Yeah. Don't hate us. So just to quickly go over what we're going to um, talk about today. So we've just covered the the context um, of the film. We're going to talk about Raymond's theme, which is um, I think it's arguably. Is that the main theme? Yeah, I would I would say it's no. the main theme of the film. People talk about it right. as like the Raymond theme, um, the, the Rain Man theme. Oh, okay. But I think it's I think it's Rain, Raymond's theme, which is a weird way of saying it. Um, and then we're going to um, break it up with a little um, talk about um, Zimmer's possible um, influences and how he um, decided to score this. Then we're going to talk about the brother, what I'm calling the brothers theme, which is more of the. Um, when you hear it in the film, it feels almost like the intro to the main theme, but it's a nice little kind of emotional motif to represent Charlie and Raymond hanging out. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's oddly kind of. Asian influenced as well because as we'll discuss he mm. wanted a world music type feel to this um, which yeah we can discuss in a little bit and then we've got some miscellaneous cues instead of in, um, including that Las Vegas sequence where it's a rock song slash gospel song that goes for like seven minutes and we're not going to cover all of it <laughs> but no. it goes for a while. And, and we're also going to discover how his work on Rain Man led to and inspired and influenced his work on future projects yeah as well yeah with a couple of with with a cue from this film that actually sounds a lot like uh future zimmer as well so shall we get into it zim i think we should i think we've kept the good people waiting long enough 
give them what they want. Awesome. <laughs> so let's start by looking at the main theme, the Raymond theme I'm calling uh, of this film. So we've got some world music, African-type vibes there. What do you think about that? I actually, I want to know what woodwind instrument he introduces the theme on. Because that, as I remember, I was watching this with my partner and I was just like, is that a flute? And she kept saying, no, it's something higher than a flute. I was like, that's weird. But I digress. It's actually a really cool theme and it feels... A lot like, well, not a lot like, the movie is essentially a road trip movie. And the track perfectly encapsulates the idea of hitting the road and going on a journey. Um, that's my takeaway from it. When I found it, and I thought it was a really enjoyable part of the music and the theme. I do feel it overplays its hand a lot within the movie because it plays it quite a bit. But I still think it's pretty good. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I when I first watched the movie, I actually thought it was quite jarring. Um, once I got my head around why he did that, I kind of got into it. And and as you go through the film, it becomes a lot, um, a lot more familiar. I think. But I think just straight off the bat, it's like, wow, we're in the middle of America, and it's just this weird kind of world music vibe. Not that world music is weird. It's just that this in this particular film. It just seems a bit out of left field, but then once you once you get used to it, it's fine. Um, I also think I, I like the melody and and talking about the instruments. Um, I think that's a pan flute you're talking about. That's what I thought it was too. Um, I thought it was a pan flute. But this entire score is digitized, so there's I don't think there's one real instrument in this, and it's mainly. It's mainly uh, due to a synthesizer um, called the Fairlight CMI, um, which I'll I'll get into the, uh, in in a second. But with this melody, so we've got this melody here, right? We've got that's that's the general gist of it. And well, that's the the part A of it, or if we were to look at it in music terms, the question part. Yeah. Right, because the question and answer. It's kind of answered. Call and response. It's kind of answered by this little. Yeah. But, uh, but it generally generally sits on that one chord pretty much the whole time. Um, and has first and foremost, what's interesting to me is, is that it has this initial leap, um, which in music terms we call a perfect fifth. 
And that one you'll probably recognize, I, I recognize it as the Star Wars leap. Um, so when I first hear that, you know, I think subconsciously we think, okay, like that leap kind of represents going on an adventure to me. And then, but it, instead of going through that major scale, which is kind of a more positive feeling, it turns back into this um, minor scale, which is a lot more um, sad or, um, in this case... I'd say more contemplative. Yeah. Perhaps. Or more mel- melancholic. That would probably be the right word. Yeah, so so it kind of gives this feeling of curiosity, like um, you're going out, but it's dangerous and you don't know. And I guess that's perfectly what... The character's going through. He's going out into this world kind of by force and doesn't know what's going to happen, but it's probably not going to be good. Um, so you get that kind of, I'm going out. Oh no, it's probably, it's probably not good. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going out. Tom Cruise is a dick. And then, and then we get this kind of um, second part, probably the, the answer you were talking about, which is the, uh, yeah. you get a second leap, which is, um, almost exactly double that leap um, to an octave, which is the same note but just up 12 notes. And then it goes... So it's it's definitely an answer to that first one, but it, it kind of um, almost gives off more more adventure vibes to me than, yeah, yeah. than like a, down... A up. more hopeful kind of resolution. And then it's accentuated by the... Yeah. But that that first theme, it's called uh, that first cue that I, I um, brought up. Um, that's actually called Leaving Warbrook, and that's from when he initially gets kidnapped by Charlie, um, and they're driving out of there. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that high pan flute really hits when they're driving across that bridge, and I feel like it's that's right. Yes, and it's. It, it really, it's really smart composing by Hans Zimmer in that as he's driving away from Warburg, we get it, and I didn't, I didn't show it in that one, but um, we get it in more softly played and um, building up. And then once we hit the bridge, we get that high version of it, and it's, it's like, kind of those. It's one of those things where in film composing, and I think even in video game and television, you call those moments hit points. Like there's a certain point within the film where, right, this needs to be up here or either music needs to hit or this is where musically it's meant to really evoke something. And Han sometimes is really, really great at that. Yeah. Um, and this was no exception. For sure. So I want to show you where it um, the melody is first referenced because it doesn't come up. It doesn't come up until then in its full form, but you get a little taste of it before it. When... Before this, when he's been driving um, to, I can't remember the city that they're in, but or going to, but um, they're driving, and it's got this kind of um, interesting, I would say, like theme. It's not really a theme, but then as he gets to Warbrook for the first time, we get these little stabs, just little hints um, that this melody is coming through. So we'll just listen to that now.
So it's it's almost like it's, it's almost just a little taste of like okay, yeah, you know, an important character's coming, which is just really smart thematic light motif composition. We should do more of it now, but that's a, that's another topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, so, I mean, you wouldn't take note of it. And I certainly did it when I first heard it. But going back over the film, I was like, oh, he's referencing like, okay, we're about to meet this character now, um, which is is really great composing. And also before we move on, I just want to have a, give you a quick, now this was on the 2010 release of the soundtrack. It seems like it was an alternate take of a cue called On the Road. Um And it's interesting and I want to listen to it because it gives you a very clear outline of what the main theme is. It's just got the bass and it's just got the melody. So it's very clear as to what it is. There's no rhythm, there's no anything. Um, So I just want to play that. It wasn't used in the film and I'm not quite sure why it was used on the CD, but I'm glad that we get to listen to it. So here we go. get a nice sense of that kind of otherworldliness in that in that alternate take i understand why they didn't use it but um i i kind of I, I really like the chord the movement of the bass underneath it and the melody and you really get a clear sense of how it moves which i think that's ultimately important the music like the rest of the film should be feel like it's moving or in the in a perpetual state of motion yeah so having that bass line kind of constantly move alongside a quite a busy theme um, because it goes, again, results in many different, well, not results in many different ways, results in one way, but the journey to there is quite, uh, you know, the, I, I forget the word for it, but the melodic contour is quite busy. That's it, the melodic contour yeah. of the main theme. Um, and it's a that's a nice tune. It sounds like it's one of, you know, when you're composing, like that's a sketch of what the main theme is. And that's what you work off of. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it is It is pretty cool. I still have no idea why it was on the CD. But look, I'm not going to complain about that. So so I just want to check out how it evolves. Because that is probably the most ma- memorable theme. And I think it's because um, it's probably the only part, aside from maybe two other places, including the Las Vegas sequence, where music actually takes over. Yep. Um, and so the melody is really allowed to shine through. Right now I'm going to show you a cue from, um, it's called Walk, Don't Run. Um, And it's when he's crossing the street and the thing says, um, don't walk. And he just stands there in the middle of the road. And it's quite, I find it, it's probably, it's quite a stressful scene because for for someone um, with autism, um, not that I can speak to that at all. But in the film, it seems as though um, it's all becoming a bit overwhelming. And I understand why they did this, but they've kind of buried the music underneath sound design. And I'm guessing to try and give you that sensory overload that they might be experiencing in that moment. And it is it is smart mixing. But they've covered up a rather really cool um, 
version of this melody that I think uh, you might be interested in hearing. Ooh, I'm excited. Let's take a gander. What do you think? I, I I really like that. I do. I think it's a shame that it got buried under the sound design of the scene. So that was like a really more somber take because you can kind of hear that kind of almost minor underlying sadness of it um, amidst the main theme and the you know, the bum 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 bum. I I really liked it. I it, I thought it was pretty cool, actually. Yeah, it's 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 pitched way down and it's really brooding. But then those that kind of glassy synth on top really gives you a sense of panic. Yeah, like it almost it makes you think, oh, like it's it's in a hurry almost. Like it, it's 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 a really fast way of mm. playing it. There's a sense of panic and fragility to it, which I think that's what yeah, makes it exactly. I mean. Um, yeah, as I said, I understand why they did it. And there's certain, certainly a lot of points in this film where they use the sound design very well. And I don't know if it won a, uh, um, I don't know if it won a Oscar for sound design, but if it didn't, I think it should have. It won for, well, I'm not sure at the time whether they did have the award for sound in 1988. I'm, I'm pretty sure they did. Um, <laughs> it won all the big ones, but not any of the technical ones. Yeah, because I think the sound design in the, in the film is one of the better aspects of it because it does use the sound design to create like a lot of confusion a lot of the time. Um, mm. And it's probably why there's a large, there's large sections of this film. There's like 15 minutes at a time without any music because I think the sound design is largely more important in this film than the composition, um, which, you know, some composers might debate that. But I, I am generally for using silence if it's needed or using sound design over music when you can because you don't want wall-to-wall music, which is funny because that's exactly what Hans Zimmer <laughs> ended up kind of going towards. Um, just look at Interstellar where you can't hear any sound design at all or um, anything. Yeah, I mean, sometimes silence is golden. The absence of music in a film will make the audience appreciate the music when it does appear even more. Yeah. you know. So wall-to-wall music, I'm sure it has its place. Well, Star Wars movies in in particular use wall to wall music. Yeah, they do have wall to wall music, and it's good. Well, that's because when you have when you have John Williams, you don't waste the John Williams. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. He just he just writes like four hours of music, and you go he goes, ah, oh, just take it. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> just use all of it. I don't care. <laughs> um, so there is a particularly long. This is probably the longest piece of music I'm going to get you to listen to because I think it's all very interesting. So this this is probably the only other time that the theme is used in a different way. And it's at the end of the film where they're at the train station saying goodbye. Um, Now, I want to take this moment to explain um, in case there's any non-musicians listening. um, Like, I don't know, my family um, said in particular last episode, we just threw in some... A lot of lingo. um, Like terms every now and then without explaining what they are. Because, you know, we wanted to make sure that everyone knows that, yeah... We know music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we know our stuff. 
but I'm going to use a term right now called syncopation, which um, I think is quite integral to this theme. Um, so syncopation, I guess the simplest way to explain what it is, is uh, say you have um, four beats in a bar, so like one, two, three, four, then the beats would fall in between those. So um, maybe one, two, three, four. It's like a basic form of syncopation. Now what this theme does is it uses syncopation in interesting ways and then takes it away at, in the last cue of the film at the train station. And I'm, I'm guessing he used it in, in, in terms of trying to make it feel like it was a bit off balance. So if we listen to it again, we go... So um, that last one, there's a little bit of a hang before we go back to that home note. That So that, that is using syncopation where you would think it would fall straight back onto the beat, but it doesn't. It waits a little bit. Um, and it's not really that big a deal, but then when he changes it later on, it's really noticeable. So he uses it more in like... which it, it doesn't sound like a huge difference, but when at the end of the film everyone's learnt their lessons and the character of Raymond has changed, um, I think it does add a lot. So um, if you're okay with that, Zim, we'll just play that now. I am down with that. I, that's my favorite cue of the um, film, I think. Really? Yeah. Wow. I really love the changes to the chords he makes. And he kind of, I've written down here in my notes, the uh, melody is given a res- resolution of sorts um, because the melody before doesn't really feel complete. No. But then he gives it the the harmony change, which has been really simple the entire film, now has like a bit of complication to it and kind of gives you those major chords and switches to a more major and happy feeling before it goes back to, oh, no, we're leaving each other um, and it goes back to being dark again. I probably didn't recognize the music in the scene, which is also a good function of what the music can do. But having listened to it now, um, I would have to agree with you. It feels different. The actual contour melodically of the main theme has changed. 
it resolves differently. It resolves, I think, somewhere near the end of the piece, it kind of ended on a higher note and a more happier version of it before it kind of goes back to that kind of like, okay, we're at the end of the journey, essentially. Um, the scene that it you know plays against is also quite an emotionally fraught one as well, so I think he scored it quite perfectly in terms of how it sits against the backdrop of these two brothers. Uh, Raymond goes back to the Institute that you know his brother kidnapped him from, but Charlie likes Raymond now, more or less. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's it's probably the one of the better scenes in the film, I think, in terms of the emotion of it and how effective it is. And I think the music definitely contributes to that because you go through a range where the melody is taken through a major version and it becomes happy, and like as they're you know kind of saying their goodbyes to each other and realizing the relationship that has grown between them. And then as the train moves away, that darker version comes back. And and now it's even darker than it was before because we've got this like really like marching doom bass line of the do, 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 do. Like it's very, it's very dour. But it kind of gives you this sense that hey, even though they've made plans to come and see each other or whatever, their relationship, even though it's grown, will probably not be what they wanted it to be. They're not never going to be those little brothers that they wanted to be as kids. Um, so I think the music really portrays that perfectly. Oh, yeah, I concur. I mean, this just shows, the, especially as his first Hollywood score, that Hans is quite adept at really understanding the emotional crux of the scene and translating that into musical language that can essentially and efficiently convey the feelings to us and kind of hit it us even harder. Because I, you know, the scene probably could have not had any music. I still don't think it would have been as effective as it was with the score. Yeah, and it's one of the few parts in, in the film where the music does take over as with that first leaving Warbrook cue as well. Um, so... Just before we move on, um, I, I did want to have a little uh, fun with something that I uh, realized while researching this film and, and looking around. Something irked me about it and I realized that the main theme kind of sounded similar to something that came out four years before Ooh. it. Um, and I, I, the conspiracy theorist in you <laughs> is starting. The, the wheels are turning again. Look, no, it's, I don't, I don't know if it's a, it's a like conspiracy theory as such. But you know, it was one of the most popular songs at the time. So how could it not have influenced? But I just think some of the rhythms, like the the kind of um, instrumentation that was used, and maybe maybe it's just because of the tools they had available at the time is the reason why it sounds so similar. But I even think some of the chords sound similar. Zim's having a little dance on Zoom to that. You know, you can't, you know, no, I, I, what a banger. <laughs> I honestly, yeah, I honestly think you could put that in with any of the driving scenes and it'd probably work. Like it sounds probably would, cause pretty similar. You have the, what in, in Africa, the same song goes, the, the, the stabs right there goes, da, 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 bum, bum, yeah. which if you were to really break it, 
yeah, it's <laughs> it's uncanny and eerie how similar that sounds. But you know, hey, it was the eighties. Those songs were really popular, and I think if he didn't directly rip it off or directly was inspired by it, he was probably subconsciously sub inspired by it. And was like, this sounds cool. This sounds like it's you know part of the era. Yeah, let's go with that. I mean, that, I think mean, that's the thing. I'm not. I'm not saying he he ripped anyone off. I think it's part of no. part of creativity is is um, internalizing things that you like and then making something new out of it. I don't think it sounds enough like it that he directly ripped it off. But um, you know, what's that? It, what's that it, saying? It is uncanny. What's that saying? Good good artist. Good artist copy other artists, but. Great artist steal or something like that. I don't know. Whatever, whatever that's saying along those lines. I mean, granted, it's it's impossible to think that you can come up with the next new thing. No, yeah, right. Because pretty much everything has been come up, has come up with. But you never know. There might be some genius out there. That's a tangent, though, mm-hmm. um, and just a nice little uh, slice into how possibly the score of Rain Man. Might have been influenced by Toto's Africa. Yeah, maybe I'll make that the title. Did Hans Zimmer steal Toto by Africa? I mean, Africa by Toto. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'd like to take a little break before we go to the brothers theme, the next theme. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to have a talk about um, how this score came about and, and why he chose what he chose. I guess the first thing I want to talk about is the sounds he made. So I said it before um, that I think this largely this score is digitized. It's digital. It's electronic. It's um, I don't I can't hear any real instruments in it. Even the the pan flute you suspect it's a like sample. Or yeah, something. well, I mean you can hear it in the pitch bends. You you can't pitch bend mm, yeah, pan flute. I don't think you can. Yeah. <laughs> um, but essentially, along with a lot, of, you know, there's a, he's got he had a lot of gear, a lot of different synths. But one of the most popular synths at the time, especially from Hans Zimmer, was called the Fairlight CMI, uh, which was uh, made by Peter Vogel, who is a, an Australian, actually. Um, I think he represent in either Sydney or Melbourne, but essentially it was one of the first, I believe it was one of the first uh, synthesizers that you could record live instruments into and then play it on your keyboard. So right now I'm playing an electronic keyboard and someone has gone and recorded a real piano. So now that I can play it on this fake kind of keyboard, if you want to see it like that. But what, this synthesizer does is that you can record anything like a pan flute and then it will automatically, it had like a, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these things, Em, I should have, I should send you a photo sometime, but it's got this massive like computer, yeah, I that I have. computer screen attached to the, um, the keyboard and it's like, it's, it's basically runs through its own computer, which I think was a first for the time as well. Um, so you didn't need any other software or anything, it just worked by itself. Um, and there's well, I think Hans was at the cutting edge of synth technology. Um, yeah, coming from Germany. Yeah, so he did a lot of synth-based stuff, and I think even in his orchestral stuff, there's still a lot of synth-based, um, you know, sounds and noises within there. So it's his bread and butter, for lack of a better word. Yeah, um, you can hear. 
you can hear in this a lot of sampled stuff. So you can hear a lot of pan flutes, as I said, um, that do a lot of unnatural things, I would say. Like you can hear when something's pitched differently. So it sounds, the, the quality of it doesn't sound quite right. Um, and so the stuff like steel drums, djembes, stuff like that to give it that kind of African uh, influence. Um, a lot of different world music type instruments, even um, if you heard in that first cue, didgeridoos, I'm pretty sure. Yes, he, I think I heard that. I, it was really early on in the track. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it popped in my head. Is that a didgeridoo? Yeah. What? <laughs> but even stuff like um, Asian uh, style, like Chinese instruments, I'm pretty sure for those more... Yeah, his his the the style of music in this goes all over the place. It's kind of just branded over this like world music. And I've got an interview that he kind of explains what exactly it is. Um, but so he's got some. I'm pretty sure he he sampled maybe an. And I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher this um, this pronunciation, but an eru, which is um, one of those single stringed kind of bowed instruments. Um, ah, right. Yep. And a pipa, which is kind of a Chinese guitar style stringed plucked instrument, um, which you can really hear in. Do you reckon you can hear that? I don't think you can hear it outright. I just think maybe one of those instruments, I think he sampled and um, mod- like modified to sound more electronic. Um, but he definitely likes using those Asian style instruments, especially when you go to like, um, I think, Gladiator for some reason. Um, uh, yeah. There's a lot of, he does have a lot of that kind of Chinese influenced um, music, uh, for better or worse. He doesn't do a lot of appropriating other cultures anymore, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> I, which probably is definitely a good thing. Um, but I've got an interview here. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's the thing. I'm I'm very cautious talking about all this stuff, you know, saying like Chinese style instruments, like African influence, because he essentially is appropriating other music um, for his own um, purposes, um, which is a tricky thing to talk about. And I'm definitely not, and I'm sure you're not def- definitely not the expert to talk about about this. Definitely not. It's um, all I can really say is it is that fine line. I mean, I think it's good to use a wide array of instruments just for a variety's sake, but it whether it you know it crosses that line is something you have to look out for. Yeah, I think I think Hans Zimmer treads treads carefully and doesn't and it's not outright um, appropriating. And I especially think when you think about something like The Lion King, where you got Lebo M in to come in do the. Um, yep. The kind of African chorus. I thought that was really cool, um, even for its time. When you're collaborating with, with them, you know, people of that of other cultures, musical background. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. You wanted to play an acute. Oh no, that's okay. Um, I was just going to say, like, yeah, he. If there's one thing Hans Zimmer is, he's a great collaborator, and he knows what who to work with and how to work with them. Um, so I've actually just got an interview here where he talks about the, the way he came up with the sound. Barry and I very quickly decided on we were going to only have two rules, no jangly guitars and no big string section because when you see a road movie, you get the jangly guitar, so you get the string section. So we thought we'll do it differently. The more I kept looking at the character of Raymond, of Rain Man himself, the more I, I thought he might as well be on Mars. He doesn't know where he is. I can be as foreign as I want to be. So I, I thought about right this sort of African Cuban electronica hodgepodge 
thing that the, the only thing that it had was it had a tune which never quite added up to anything and it was like I mean actually if you took the whole score of Rain Man and put all the cues together you would actually get the completion of the tune as it is it's always interrupted by things interfering just like Raymond's thought process yeah so it's, it's interesting to hear it from his perspective it's funny though, he talks about it as though he came up with an entirely new idea for this movie, but as we've discussed, the um, movie A World's Apart, A World Apart. Um, a World Apart, yeah. I might actually play that right now because it sounds, you know, you said he got this gig based on that and I believe you because it kind of sounds very similar, um, which is not a bad thing at all. It's just interesting composers talking about how they how they come up with stuff. Obviously, Barry Levinson wanted something pretty much like this. So yeah, like not not completely the same in terms of like tonally, but I think style-wise has the same vibe. I think one could definitely look at it and say, ah, that's the progenitor of Rain Man or that is the very distant family member of Rain Man. Yeah. Well, not even distant, to be honest. They're, very, they're closely related. Yeah. So shall we, do you want to Zim? I'll give you an option because if you don't want to, it's fine. Go on. Do you want to listen to... Uh, do you want to start talking about the brothers theme? Ooh. Or, or is the option to not talk about the brothers theme? The, the other option is that we stop this podcast right now and we go home. Oh, that's a tough <laughs> call. I'm not sure. What, Even though we are home. Yeah, we are home. God, if we're not at home, we're breaking the law. Exactly. <laughs> I say we, we go ahead and do it. Okay. And, you know, people can always stop. You can pause this podcast whenever you want to if you've heard enough of us. How dare you if you do that, but we understand. Yeah, we got I, I've been putting I put time codes in the last one so you can kind of skip to wherever you want to go. Uh, but let's talk about the brothers theme. So it's probably the second most significant theme within the movie. I, I didn't quite know what what the theme was when I first watched the movie. Um, it just kind of turned up every now and then, but then kind of like scrubbing through the film. The second time, I noticed it mainly comes up when there's a development in the brothers' relationship. So I've taken to calling it the brothers' theme. Um, it first comes up after the big traffic accident where he gets out of the car on the highway because there's an accident there. Um, but first of all, let's listen to what the theme sounds like straight up and then we'll go back and listen to it when it first comes in.
So, yeah, we've got a nice, it's a nice little reflective type piece, I think. It's, 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 it's a very sentimental. Yeah. In its, or it feels sentimental in its articulation and performance. Yeah, another thing to note from a compositional standpoint is it actually has, it's probably a lot more close together than Raymond's theme outright. So there's not that, there's huge leaps anymore. We've there's just, not a lot of leaps and movements. Yeah, we've just got this. So we're still returning back down there, but then we get a little development the second time. So it's essentially using the same melody but slowly changing it, which is something that John Williams does a lot. He'll repeat a phrase but then change it slightly, which is a really cool way to just invite variation and keep it interesting. So we go... Yeah, it's a bit of a longer melody for for Hans Zimmer, I think, but what happens after that is um, the on the road cue, which I showed the alt take of that. There's like a drone, and it's quite an interesting part of the film. We're not going to listen to it now, but it's just this bass drone that carries on for at least 30 seconds um, while they're driving. No sound design is probably one of the first and only moments in the film where all the sound design gets drowned out by this Mm. drone because this big moment has just happened between them where they've figured out that Raymond is Rain Man and that he was moved to the institution because he he was they were afraid that he might hurt Charlie. So they've just had this big moment. Well, no, I think it was that he had hurt Charlie when they were younger. Yeah, they've just had this big moment. So it's really interesting that they decided to just go straight for one note drone all the way until they're driving and then back back comes in the uh, syncopated rhythms and the, it's all back groovy again um, because we can't have it too, go too dour. Um, yeah. But it is played on its own and one of the first time, times it's played is after, when he's, after the accident when he doesn't want to drive on the highway anymore because it's too dangerous. So Charlie um, says, okay, you can walk out the front of the car until we get off the highway. Oh, God, yeah. So he plays it. He plays it there just briefly. It, it is a it's, a, it's a more stripped back version of that melody. I haven't actually learned how to play that, but it's kind of like. Um, something, something like that, where it kind of just. It is, it is very much the, it, it's essentially taking, it's just keeping the key um, recognizable moments of the main theme, of that theme. Because the theme, I think the more melodic version of it, it's a lot more notes and it goes like... Da, 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 da. Yeah, and I think if you look at it from a, a, a dramatic point of view, from a story point of view, this is this happened before... This happens before the um, the they that scene we were talking about before. So this is the first time we really yep. hear it in the film. And it's the first time that Charlie starts to look at him a bit differently and realise that maybe... Because at, th- at that point, 
um, rather regrettably <laughs> on this film's point of, but he kind of just expects he feels like he's acting and he feels like he's um, not he's he is normal, but he's just pretending not to be and he's not buying it. Um, so when this accident yeah, happens, it's... yeah, it's 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 pretty rough to watch to be honest. But, but when he like when this accident happens, I feel like Tom Cruise finally realized, like Charlie finally realizes that. Oh, okay, maybe he doesn't. He isn't in control of this, and and their relationship starts to grow from that point on. I think. Um, so that's that's why you get this stripped back version that kind of references what's to come. Like the seeds are starting to form there, but it isn't fully developed yet. It does come back again, fully formed when they're getting pancakes together, and in the my main man in the queue called my main man. So we'll go pancakes first. Um, this kind of sweet part where um, Raymond is and Charlie are getting pancakes together after the whole um, thing with the smoke alarm happens, um, and. They have a laugh together and have they have a joke together. So it's this kind of nice moment of recognition between the t- the two of them. I forgot, I forgot to tell you. I think I, I, I know I know what you're thinking, but um, I the reason I put that in there it doesn't play the melody outright, but I think it uses a similar harmonic structure, and I think it references that melody. I think yeah, because I was trying to I was trying to listen for it, but I was kind of like I can't hear it, but it's, it sounds eerily similar in terms of like yes, the harmonics would support. The evidence, well, the evidence supports that it is a more harmonic tuned version of that brother's theme. Yeah, and I guess I put it in there because I was looking for ways that the theme evolves, and this theme actually doesn't really evolve that much. But aside from the aftermath thing, where it, it strips it back, but um, that one, yeah, I just thought that the harmonic, the the chords and stuff like that, the, um, it was different, and it doesn't really play the melody. But I thought it referenced that theme. Um, one that does reference the theme, I'm sure of it, um, is the My Main Man one, which we can listen to now. I like this one as well because um, it kind of 
almost the same way as the train station cue. Um, it kind of reference, it kind of changes the chords and the melody slightly as a bit of a resolution to it, um, and also references that stripped back version, which I think to me kind of sounds like a bit of a nostalgic feeling of like, hey, remember how far we've come? Because at this point they're in the arbitration office or something like the, with the lawyers. Yeah. Um, so they're reflecting at this point and I, I think it's a good use of um, a theme from earlier um, trying to evoke those things of like, hey, remember when we weren't brothers? <laughs> <laughs> I think to me it, it sounds like it's the, it follows the rule of, and this is a rule that I follow, and when I'm trying to compose music, it's the keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, it's um, there's no grand like you know statement with five million instruments being played at once to just show how grand. It's the scene doesn't need that. It's just a simple statement with the bare minimum needed to evoke that feeling, and there's no need to kind of go bigger and that. Which I think it just is a perfect resolution to that theme and a perfect message of their journey in and of itself which is you're right it harkens back to that really stripped down version of that's where we started and where we ended we're still brothers but the theme has developed more melodically but you know we'll not forget what happened kind of thing yeah um yeah i really i really like that one so now we have uh, we have gone a bit over the time that I was thinking, but that's that's understandable. <laughs> a lot of tech issues, though. A lot of a lot of tech issues to start. Yeah, and I mean that's just the you know that's just how it goes. You plan for something and it doesn't quite work out. So what I'm proposing is that we've got some miscellaneous cues now that I just kind of want to whiz right. through, talk about briefly. Yep. Just some interesting ones that yep. I thought we needed to listen to, including the. I'm going to call it infamous Las Vegas thing, but I don't really think it's that famous. So, um, yeah. Let's start with that because this one is um, very 80s. Yeah, that goes on for seven minutes or, or so. It's a lot. If you want to listen to the rest of the queue, you can find the either the link to the soundtrack that you found or watch the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to listen to any more of that because, I mean, it's, it's fine for what it is. Um, it's just very cheesy and it's very, um, I think dated is probably it is the quintus- word. Qu- quintessential 80s and speaking of quintessential 80s it's one of my favorite songs from the 80s i've got another conspiracy theory although this one is way more conspiracy than theory but um released in the same year is a song that sounds so similar and uses the same chord structure and everything that my head just thinks it sounds exactly the same, but it came out the same year, so there's no way that they could have copied each other. Like, So I don't know how this happened. But this song is called Simply Irresistible, and I wonder if you can hear the similarities.
Yeah, so I don't know if it's just me, but I, I just I hear. I think it's a a. It does sound similar a little bit. B. I think it should be a running gag that you will have a conspiracy theory <laughs> for like every podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's just going to come across that I'm saying everyone's copying everyone. I, I I think that there's good copying and bad copying. Um, but that one's just a fun little thing because there's no way they could have copied each other, but somehow they've both come up with. Because whenever I, unless they worked together, I googled and, extensively, you know, and there's no, there's uh, no mention of those. You've covered. This. I know because I was like, surely there's some mention of this, but no, they they didn't. There's no article that says, "Hey, Robert Palmer, who wrote that song," and. Hans Zimmer worked together on this thing, which I would have been like, oh, that settles it then. But no, it came out the same year. There's little to no evidence that that happened. But whenever I hear that in the film, I go, oh, it's simply irresistible. (laughs) And I start singing along to it. (laughs) So, you know, there's my, uh, my, we'll call this segment Michael's Conspiracy Theory. (laughs) Yep. Or Michael's Conspiracy Corner. Yeah, Michael's Conspiracy Corner. Um, Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Glad that's my character from now on. We're introducing a light motif uh-huh, in this podcast, which is the conspiracy corner. Watch it develop or not. We'll just be repeated constantly. Don't worry, it'll be back. I'll make it a thing. I am intrigued to see what conspiracy theories you'll work out for The Lion King, which is our next episode. I'm sure there will be, but it has to be related to the music. Well, Mike, I've already got one, and which is that there's certain things in this film that I immediately was like, oh, that's The Lion King. So I think that this film heavily inspired The Lion King also. Well, don't go full out because that's a tease for the next <laughs> podcast episode. So is there any more cues that you want to uh, yeah, show? A couple more. That just we'll just rattle them off quick fire. Yep. So there's this one um, called Empty House. Again, it's buried underneath sound design. You barely hear it in the film, but I think it's quite interesting. So very atmospheric, very um, dreamy and stuff because he's walking through um, his old house. His dad's house, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, and yeah, it doesn't really come up again, but like, um, and it, you can barely hear it in the film. Yeah, but it's a nice ambience kind of song. It's one of those tracks that I guess if in an ambient level in the video game when nothing's happening, you'd kind of hear that. Yeah, it's... It's funny, I actually think they used it as ambience, like sound design ambience in the film um, ah, because right. you can kind of hear it and it's a, everything's very airy and, and washy, but you can't make out any distinct sounds. But yeah, I, I really like some of the synths he's used there and the sounds that he was able to create. This is some cool synths though. I, like, I always like synth string-like sounds, so yeah. I'm a sucker for that. So. so now this one was exclusively on the, C- the CD from 2010 and I t- it seems like offcuts from the 
rock gospel track that we just played before from Las Vegas. But the way it's put together here, right. I don't know where it was supposed to go in the movie, but man, it sounds weird. So yeah, um, that's just. So that's that's something. That was something. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, I had really nothing more to say no, about that. I, I didn't really have any plan for that. I just thought it was it was interesting that it was on the CD for some reason, but just don't know how it would fit in the film at all. I guess it's one of those things where Hans like I made this, and the director was like, ah, no, <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> so just before we get going, I just wanted to ask how you think this fits in with um, this whole score fits in with like his future uh, filmography. There are trends of what he would eventually go towards a more rhythmic and atmospheric core that is some score, sorry, that is somewhat devoid of melody. However, Hans, I think is a very capable and there I say a very good melodic and thematic writer. He just hasn't done that in the past few years is scores, especially in the decade from 2010 on has been very much about feeling and atmosphere and rhythm. But in terms of a pure thematic melody, his heyday was in the eighties and nineties. And this is a stunning example of that. Uh, but you can also feel the rhythms and the synths, which would ultimately influence most, if not all of his work to follow. Um, it'll be interesting if, you know, he does a fully just orchestral score that is purely just orchestra. I'm sure he has done it, but I can never really separate the synth from him in terms of how I listen to it. And I suspect he can't separate himself from synth with orchestra. Having said that, um, I think this will probably be remembered as one of his more um, favorable scores of the 80s. Uh, you know, because in the 80s he did this, and I guess the only other notable one was Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, this one is definitely a bit better than Driving Miss Daisy in terms of the score. Driving Miss Daisy is a bit out there, but I still think that it will it influenced it his future, but in a subtle ways, not in a big bombastic way. Yeah, I I, I agree. I he it's funny he he does say in interviews and stuff that when he started using orchestras more, and I guess The Lion King is probably not an example of that, like. I think because it was a Disney movie, he was like, well, I've got to use a full orchestra for this. And he does use synth-based stuff. As I said, there's parts that do sound like this film. You know, later on he does say even in uh, I think The Dark Knight and like The Dark Knight Rises and stuff like that that he wanted to use the orchestra like a synth. Like what if, you know, what if um, they just play this line... That's not a that's not a good thing at all. But like, what if that? What if they just do repeated patterns over and over again, slowly evolving like a synth would? Um, 
And yeah, that's how those those scores kind of work. I do want to play a cue, which I think illustrates um, something modern Zimmer would do. And it's this this cue, it's the traffic accident I was talking about where he gets out of the car when there's a traffic accident, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think it's one of the main cues that sounds, it's got that building feeling that a lot of the modern Zimmer scores have. It's got a lot of um, more instruments start joining in and it starts to get louder and louder. That layering kind of thing. He's very good at layering. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, I mean, he uses that classic kind of Zimmer technique that I think we've all come to understand of that, that ostinato, which is a kind of repeated phrase or pattern with those uh, with that synth doing those stabs, which I think actually is a sampled voice just pitched down. The, da, da, Interesting. Da, 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 da. So that just repeats over and over again as the drums and everything comes in and starts building. And then you've got that one like kind of... It's almost a brassy synth coming in that just keeps rising and rising and you don't know when it's going to stop rising, which is another technique that Zimmer likes to use a lot. That is the classic Zimmer technique. Um, he utilizes, I think, what's an auditory technique. I think it's called a shepherd tone or yeah. something like that. Or it's just this constantly rising. Yeah, that this one probably isn't a shepherd tone, but it, it, it definitely feels like a seed of a shepherd tone. It definitely feels like... Yeah. He would go on to do this in a more shepherd Tony way, like in Dunkirk. Which are we going to discuss that? I don't know. I, I, I'm becoming more warm to it, uh, but I'll, I'll reveal my opinions on that film when we come to it. We could also, you know, leave it to our fans to decide what they would like to discuss from Hans Zimmer disc- discography. Bold of you to assume we have fans. <laughs> Yeah, actually, it is pretty bold. But you know what? I was told to be bolder, so I am going bold, going bigger. Go home. Yeah. Um. But seriously, though, to any of you who have been listening and have stuck around to the end of this podcast, thank you so much for listening to us again. This is still an experiment for us, and unfortunately, we have to do it remotely. Yeah. But we hope that it's still in the quality that you will enjoy, and that you have actually also learned a thing or two about film scores and all. Until the next episode, I've been Zim. And you will be Zim again. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying that every time you say that. <laughs> And we are the and sound I of scoring. Am, I am Michael. Sorry. <laughs> yep, he has to say that first. And we're the Sound of Scoring podcast. Yep. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time. Bye. Bye.